This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guests today are John Balestro, editor of The Library's Guide to Graphic Novels and many of the book's authors. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from Syndetics Unbound from ProQuest and Library Thing, and from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. Today's episode is brought to you by Syndetics Unbound from ProQuest and Library Thing. Syndetics Unbound helps public and academic libraries enrich their catalogs and discovery systems with high-interest elements, including cover images, summaries, author profiles, similar books, reviews, and more. Syndetics Unbound encourages serendipitous discovery and higher collection usage and was awarded Platinum Distinction in the Library Works 2021 Modern Library Awards. To learn more about Syndetics Unbound, visit syndetics.com. While there, be sure to visit the Syndetics Unbound blog for news and analysis, including a breakdown of libraries' top titles and other stories of interest to the library community. Again, that's syndetics.com, S-Y-N-D-E-T-I-C-S.com, to learn more about today's sponsor, Syndetics Unbound. Graphic novels, comic books, have been around for more than a century and in recent decades have been finding their way more and more into libraries of all types. New formats bring new opportunities and new challenges, which makes it important for library workers to understand the intricacies of the medium and how it impacts library work, everything from collection development to cataloging to programming. The Library's Guide to Graphic Novels aims to bridge that gap. Here's editor John Balestro. I am John Balestro. I work at Evans Library at Texas A&M University. I'm the director of uh, collection development and acquisitions and adaptive cataloging. I've been collecting since the seventh grade, so a good 35 years worth of collecting comics and looking at graphic novels. I always started to go with the art and the story was secondary, but as I grew a little bit more mature in a couple of years, story-driven comics started to appeal to me. And so It has so much more aspects of how those two are combined that is one of the very few formats out there that does that. I did a presentation in 2017 at ALA Annual about unusual workflows in acquisitions. And one of those is graphic novels because they are kind of a weird serials type format. And an Alex representative, uh, Susan Thomas, was at that uh, presentation and asked, hey, do you want to do a... Uh, monograph for us. And I said, awesome. That's great. And then I started working on it and I felt like there is no way that even my knowledge could cover all the aspects of a huge monograph for graphic novels. So that's where I worked with her to say, hey, can I kind of push towards getting more depth and breadth to this monograph and put out a call and see who is interested in getting more types of uh, chapters in it. And luckily, we got a very nice mix of technical services, you know, cataloging and collection development and acquisitions, and then kind of the public service side of marketing and collection development. So I really got a really good group of people who are very knowledgeable and passionate about those subject areas. My name is Josh Everett. I am the librarian for anthropology, sociology, and I also cover area studies, Latin American and Islamic studies. 
My mom is a fine artist. Uh, she does sculpture. And so I grew up along with my siblings going to art museums all the time. And so visual art was something that definitely stood out to me. And I was a big reader as a kid. And so having those worlds combine in, in a way that was exciting and that I could also watch in cartoons and seem to be all around me at the time was really exciting. And I think that's what drew me to comics. But what continues to attract me to comics and graphic novels as a format is that I think that sequential art, that comics, they have none of the limitations that so many other art forms have. Comic books have no CG budget. They don't have to rely on rendering or computer power. If you can imagine it, you can create it. So I think that comics by being a combination of different art forms end up having fewer limitations than a lot of other art forms have. I'm Andrea Kingston and I am the digital initiatives and special projects librarian at Monroe Community College. I was first introduced to graphic novels because my roommate right after college worked for Fantagraphics. So I got to know all the Fantagraphics artists and you know, went to parties with them all and everything and got to know them as people before I started to look at their artwork. So it was a personal connection for me Mm -hmm. that was a a little bit unusual, I suppose. But going from there, uh, I just became really interested specifically in nonfiction graphic novels. I love the way the combination of the artwork and the narrative really adds a new dimension to the story. Sometimes the artist and the writer are the same person. Sometimes they're different people, but I think it Either way, it engages your mind in a new way with the words on the page that just reading straight narrative doesn't do. My name is Carly Spina, and I'm an associate professor and the head of research and instructional services at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. I think I just always really loved the combination of the visual artwork with the storytelling. So as a child, I just think I found that very enjoyable. And as I came back to reading graphic novels and comics as an adult, I really like that with a single creator writing the story and illustrating it, it offers a whole new perspective on their thinking about the topic and almost a way to picture it through their eyes. And when you're talking about creative teams, you're getting to see multiple artists' viewpoints combined for a single creative endeavor in a way that isn't quite as common with books and is more akin to something you might see like in movies or video games. And I just think it's a really interesting creative process to get to experience. And I find it to be an exciting type of storytelling that can be the perfect approach for many stories and works really well for conveying certain types of information. My name is Lucia Cedeira Cerantes, and I'm a part-time instructor in the University of Toronto and the University of Western Ontario, where I teach courses on reference comics and comics and libraries. My thesis was on comics reading, and I interview readers for that work. So personally, as a comics reader myself, I like the diversity of stories and art styles. I grew up in Spain, and even though the Spanish comic industry back then was not as strong as it is right now, we were exposed to comics from different countries. There was American comics available, French comics, Spanish comics. So it seems that you could almost do anything in comic format. And one of the first comics that I read, it was actually a comics version of a Bible. 
And from my research, and then I realized that it's something that it also works for me, comics are so malleable as reading material. You can read them really fast and still kind of enjoy them and get the gist of what is happening and get kind of like that sense of satisfaction of accomplishing something. But also they can be very contemplative because of the art part. You can slow down your reading experience so much and just look at a panel for 10 minutes or or look at how a page has been created and designed. My name is Michael P. Williams. I am the uh, head of Global Studies Technical Services at the University of Pennsylvania Libraries. I definitely grew up with comics and cartoons. So I was watching things that qualified as anime before I even knew it, really. You know, these uh, disguised Japanese cartoons dubbed over with American voices. You have no idea where these things are made. They're just presented to you as media. So... I guess I'd always been aware of like a manga aesthetic and anime aesthetic, but not really intentionally until manga as a thing started appearing in the 1990s. It was really intoxicating to see something that looks so unlike anything I'd ever seen before and just kind of started realizing, wow, there's a whole medium out there I wasn't aware of. And that kind of formed a backdrop to why I even started learning Japanese in the first place. Hi, I'm uh, Matthew No. I'm the lead collection and knowledge management librarian at Countway Library, which is part of Harvard Medical School. So I, for the most part, came to comics as an adult. At first, I was really attracted to them because it gave me, I was in like this huge reading slump after undergrad, and we all experienced that after grad school. But so they gave me a more accessible, more fun, more enjoyable way to get back into reading because we were doing a bunch of superhero comics then. But now I now I use them professionally for all kinds of stuff. Hello, my name is Allison Bayland, and I work at San Diego State University in the comm department as a cataloger and acquisitions library specialist. I was really into X-Men the Animated Series, which was when I was in elementary school. I used to come home and watch it pretty much every day. It was like my favorite cartoon. And I'm also from San Diego, so that meant San Diego Comic-Con. When I started middle school, I got really into manga and anime as well and kind of branched out into that. And I just always enjoyed the stories and the fact that it kind of pushed some boundaries from more traditional fantasy and science fiction novels that I would read as a kid. Like there was a lot more to dig into for comics and graphic novels. I'm Hallie Clausen. I am currently working at a children's bookstore in Los Angeles. I was not super into comics when I was a kid. I I mean, I liked picture books and that kind of thing. But in high school and college, I started to learn more about them and kind of fell into it through some of my favorite artists. Uh, The first comic I think I read consistently was Digger by Ursula Vernon. And I started reading that because when it was posted as a webcomic, I started reading that because I had been a fan of her art for years. So I came to it from the art and have enjoyed the marriage of narrative with art more as an adult. Hello, I'm Jacob Gordon, the Archives and Special Collections Librarian at Junietta College. For me personally, I used to collect comics. So for me, the appeal of graphic novels was the completeness, being able to have like the single story arc or miniseries all in one volume and not having to worry about like getting all three issues and being able to just sit down with it and enjoy it as a complete uh, product. I'm Sarah Kern. I'm the access services and instruction librarian at Juniata college. 
I think what I'm most excited about is that potential to use them in classrooms. I like that they're an incorporation of art and visual and writing, so multiple kinds of storytelling. It's enjoyable as a reader, but it's also some great opportunities to use in the classroom because it's engaging with multiple literacies. And they're kind of sneaky because for a student, it's like, oh, it's fun. We get to read a graphic novel for class, but it's a really great opportunity for them to uh, learn critical reading skills, critical analysis, and learn about historical events, about science, about a lot of different things. So I like them because they're sneaky. So sure, libraries have graphic novels, but how accepted are they as a medium by the wider library field? I think there's always going to be a stigma with comics and graphic novels that they are not quite literature. They certainly have come a long way since even the 80s, 90s, and aughts. I think it's a matter of convincing administration, whether you're at a a public or academic library, that these are useful in terms of more than usage stats and circulation. But we also need to tie that into what the curriculum is in certain classes. I think libraries have a ways to go, but I think the comics industry also has a ways to go. I feel like they need to meet in the middle. I obviously believe in the value of comic books and graphic novels. That being said, I feel like the comics industry, comics creators, comics fans, we've wanted to be taken seriously for so long. And yet there's no way to get to the originals of anything. If I sit down today and I say, I would really love to do some research and write you know, an article about the development of Spider-Man from his origins and through the 70s until the mid 80s, you know, just pick a random time frame there. There's no way for me to go back and get all of those issues. There's no way for me to compare and contrast them or to have easy access to them. I've been trying to reach out to publishers lately to see, you know, is there a database that is available to libraries that you can get these old archival important issues on? And there's just not. Because we're in the library world, we can say, oh, what can libraries do better? I think that we also need to look at the comic industry and the comics world and go, well, what could you do to bridge the gap with us? I think libraries want to provide what their patrons want. And so I think it's more on the comic book industry to say, you know, let's figure out a way to make these more accessible in libraries. I think there are some librarians who definitely get it. But despite the fact that many graphic novels are nonfiction, I feel like some professors don't regard them as reliable sources of information. There's still that stigma, this association with comic books and fiction. And so I think we still have a ways to go to make it clear that a lot of these are serious works of nonfiction and have a unique perspective to represent. I think that there's still a lot of people who don't think of themselves as enjoying comics. And there are still parents and teachers who don't see comics as real reading. And that's a problem that actually also still impacts audiobooks as well. There's the sense that there's real reading and then there's not real reading. I also think that there's a lot of people who maybe think that they read comics when they were a kid, but they wouldn't necessarily see themselves doing that as an adult. I'm always waiting for that day where I'm not going to hear from a student say that they heard a parent or a coworker or an administrator saying something about comics 
like why are comics in the library or why they should allow their kid to check out a comic or why they should increase the budget for comics. So I think a lot of things have changed and a lot of things are getting uh, much, much better. But I think there's still a lot of problems that come from people not knowing actually how difficult and how complex it is to read a comic. It seems that it comes naturally for children. And it seems that you don't have to do anything to read a comic. You just read it and it's very easy. But they're not aware of the literacy mechanisms that need to be at play. And the two examples that I usually use with my students is the ones that are not manga readers, and they suddenly have to start reading manga and suddenly having to read from right to left or having to suddenly discover the the visual language of manga, like shorthands, what certain images mean. It's almost like reading in another language. And I think that that shows that they're not easy. So they should have their own place among reading materials as something that promotes certain literacies that are different than just text. So I think there's kind of like still something to catch up there and knowing about the richness of what comics can do and the kind of stories they can tell would help too, I think. I, I, I think having comics in libraries re-legitimizes the form, reminds people that art and literature are not just paintings in museums and, you know, thick books on a shelf. It transcends medium and it transcends age groups. And that's something we should always remember. I think sometimes as academic librarians, we can imagine what the types of books we accession versus the type of books you might find in a public library. But those are all fictions, right? One person's public library book is another person's academic library book and so on. So really doing our best to serve whoever our patrons are, whatever they look like, whatever they're interested in, without really judgment of the materials and more you know, welcoming of new types of things. Uh, Even if they put a strain on staff and processing, you think, oh, God, what are we going to do with these things after this? Well, let's meet our patrons' needs, and then let's figure out how to store them after, (laughs) I guess. We're seeing public libraries, especially larger public libraries. The comic section has become a staple. The circulation numbers are always really high, and that's always a justification to keep them around. But there are still regular challenges to comics. There are still school libraries who have to fight with parents and teachers that they count as a real thing. Academic libraries are much slower than public and school even to adopt comics. And we're seeing a lot of progress there, but there's a ways to go. Some of that is acceptance. And some of that also has to do with our backend stuff. Like we get lots of questions to the the graphic novels and comics roundtable about cataloging and shelving and how to handle all of that. So the more answers and guidance we can provide on that, I think the easier time it'll be to see comics grow in libraries, especially places that don't have the staff to redo everything to make it work. It's starting to become accepted. I don't think it's to the point where it is a given. I think depending on the institution, it can get a lot of support, but in large part, I think it depends on the staff. One thing that we found when we were doing our interviews was the person who tends to be in charge of graphic novels and comics at a library tends to be just the person on staff who likes them. It's not yet to the point where it's an assumed thing that you need to understand to some extent in libraries. It's still sort of in its little niche box. It's much easier for me lots of times to find 
comics in the public library than it is in an academic library. And I do think it's slowly changing, but I do agree that it's still sometimes very niche. And it's a lot of times the people who really enjoy comics or you'll have a cataloger who catalogs it, but they're not really putting in the right headings. On top of that, I also think that it's just comics have just been degraded for so long and so much media and stuff. I mean, you could get them back in the day for like a nickel. And so they're kind of grouped with, you know, dime novels and pulp and science fiction. And that just kind of made them seem not worthy, quote unquote, to be in an academic library. So I think that it's the marriage of those two ideas. It's kind of kept some academic libraries from accepting comics. I completely agree with Allison. I think that a lot of it is the fact that society hasn't had any respect for comics just in general. I also think sort of what I was saying before is that people don't understand it. So unless there's someone at your institution who understands comics and is willing to advocate for it, I mean, just like anything else, you're not going to have that thing in your collection. For them to truly be successful, it will depend on the instructor's implementation of them. So they, they can be very useful and helpful for students to discuss or explore a very familiar topic just through a new perspective. But in thinking about the educational goals and then kind of adding the fun stuff on top of that, like matching the books to specific learning outcomes can help. And from some of the faculty we talk to, just by choosing a graphic novel, you're making it much more likely the student will actually do the assigned reading. So yeah, the graphic novels are sort of like great sneaky vegetables. You increase the chances of the students reading and really reading closely. And they're also really great ways for introducing students to critical analysis, especially for introducing them to a new kind of source. So they're getting to practice this visual and literary analysis. And then those are skills that they can transfer to other parts of the class or to their academic career or to their life. And then again, it also helps make the classroom more accessible. So students are learning in a lot of different ways. People learn in a lot of different ways. And this gives them sort of another way of learning. So if a student loves visual learning, does really well with that, then they have a chance to succeed there. Comics basically started as a, a way to reprint comic strips that were done in the newspapers. And so publishers found a way to make money off of recycled content. Comic strips that were in the newspapers on a daily basis were collected probably on a monthly and put into a comic book form and basically were treated like a newspaper was. It was thrown away. I, I talk specifically about them as cultural artifacts because they were not designed to last they were designed for a certain population, by a certain population. They were not seen as anything other than very lowbrow at best, maybe childish at worst, or maybe the opposite would be more accurate. As much as you might say that any piece of literature or any piece of artwork reflects the society in which it is created, I think it is particularly true of comics because they're not designed to last. I think the fact that you now see them in Barnes and Noble in the early 90s and mid 90s, you saw them as, as graphic novel forms, started to change the attitude of some people, not a lot, but some people that comics could get into the mainstream next to literature 
in the aughts, in the 2010s, you started seeing publishing houses get into graphic novels, original content, whether it be history, nonfiction, biography, all that sort of stuff, as well as Marvel and DC starting to turn out some really good content. Libraries are going to play a crucial role in getting younger readers into it because younger readers hopefully become older readers like myself and enjoy that long term. Developing a collection is an important first step in getting graphic novels. So what kinds of considerations do libraries need to keep in mind when getting started? It helps to begin with a good understanding of the campus community, the patrons that you're serving, the students, demographics, that sort of thing. And also the college curriculum. You need to get a good feel for what topics are being taught and how the collection can connect to that. We also serve as a leisure reading resource for students. So it helps to kind of get a feel for what students are into as far as their leisure reading. So we do a lot of things like whiteboards with where we gather suggestions that sort of thing. So that's a great way to start. You just want to get a feel for what the students want to read. So I try and keep an open mind and not just get all those super serious nonfiction titles, but keep an eye on what other folks are reading as well. Collection that I manage, one of the big focuses is on diverse and inclusive perspectives. So that does end up including a lot of indie titles and not so many of the big publishers. I mean, of course, some of the big publishers put out some great stuff, but I'm really looking for those untold stories, those international perspectives, feminist titles, LGBTQ titles, stories about immigrants, all those things. So a lot of those tend to be from the smaller publishers. Well, for me, for a few years, I was able to be the one to make the choices on what our library buys. So in making those decisions, I was kind of working through several different criteria. Well, the most important was kind of classics in the genre. So making sure the most well-known ones were represented in our collection, like Mouse or other, like Watchmen, like the very well-known ones. But then I'd also kind of branched out from there and tried to target uh, a more open global view. So trying to get like the more uh, graphic memoir series or Penn State Press has their graphic medicine series. So making sure we have some of those. And again, thinking academically, what can we buy that would reflect those disciplines and give us a pool to approach those professors. The graphic history series does a really great job of the comic graphic novel part. And then there's sort of more of a textbook part and then primary sources at the end. They're incredible for history classrooms. It's a really great resource for that, not to like be doing a commercial for them or anything, but we've recommended those to a couple of different classes because it has those, it's multiple modes of engagement telling the same story. It's, really almost hard to say that there's a core collection at this point. But I think that, you know, there are some titles that every library should probably have. So one title I would really recommend as a starting place for any library collection is Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. And that's because it's a really great introduction about how to read and analyze comics and graphic novels. And it really talks about what it means to read the art of comics and how panels work. But it's also something where if you've read comics your whole life, you're sure to pick up on subtle details about how comics artists think and how they use the page that you never guessed before or never really noticed or didn't know the term for. So I think almost anybody can learn from reading that book. 
and come away with a new appreciation and understanding for the art form. Graphic novels are obviously not a monolith, not just a single genre, but come in all kinds of forms, many of which are explored in the book. We'll start here with nonfiction and move on to international comics, manga, and graphic medicine. I think pretty much every type of nonfiction has been or could be written as a comic. One of the most commonly thought of is biographies or memoirs, and they are particularly common and include some of the most famous examples of nonfiction graphic novels like Mouse or Persepolis or Fun Home. But there are also really important works of comics journalism, science writing, which includes graphic medicine, business analysis, cookbooks, travel guides, how-to instructions, philosophy, pretty much any topic you can think of. There's probably graphic novels that go into it. And sometimes with things like science writing, it can be a really great way to convey information that might be intimidating to people otherwise. It can be a good way of illustrating things. If a reader likes any type of nonfiction, there's probably a graphic novel that will appeal to their interests and the types of nonfiction that they normally read. There are several ways that they can be difficult to evaluate, I think. First, it's important to evaluate not just the text, but also the visuals. And this can be a new and different type of evaluation, depending on the person who's evaluating the book. So if it's somebody who's used to just books with text, that can be something that's a little bit more tricky for them. Moreover, art style can vary widely. So it can be really tricky, even if you do evaluate art, to really think about how you're going to evaluate that element of the book. In nonfiction graphic novels, the visuals need to be appropriate for the topic and not misleading, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they need to be 100% accurate or truthful in a sense. So as an example, if you're reading a work of graphic history, the visuals should in most cases be accurate to the time period. A work set in the 1700s shouldn't have electric lights in the images, for example. However, if the work includes specific historical figures, the depiction of that person might not be photorealistic. And that's fine. So there is that sort of element of knowing what you're looking for as being accurate and what doesn't necessarily need to be. Another example might be in science writing, the connection to reality might be different. So for example, Maris Wicks has a book called Human Body Theater, and she details real scientific information about anatomy in the human body. But most of the drawings are sort of cute, personified, cartoony versions of body parts. And the fact that the drawings are done not with this focus on scientific realism, but instead with sort of a stylized look at things, doesn't detract from the information that's being conveyed. But it is something that the person who's evaluating the work needs to be thinking about, you know, does that work with the story? Is the information still clear? Is the context given to make it clear that this isn't an accurate representation? So it's important to remember that you are evaluating the visual elements of graphic novels, but at the same time, they are art. There's a reason that photographs aren't being used here. The artistic vision is an integral part of the book. Another thing I really love about a lot of nonfiction graphic novels is that they're not necessarily so much, I mean, some certainly are aimed at adults specifically, but a lot of them are aimed at, it's going to be enjoyable for kids, it's going to be enjoyable for teenagers, it's going to be enjoyable for adults, maybe even everyone will get something slightly different out of it, but I think it really makes for an opportunity for libraries to suggest the same book to a lot of different people. I think the example of the human body theater is a really good example where lots of different age groups could enjoy that book and learn from it actually too. We kind of uh, decided that international was 
the best term for us. It was a decision based on kind of like the term that worked better for what we wanted to do, because it clearly, for us, it showed the understanding that we were talking about comics that were published outside of the U.S. and they were available in the U.S. either through translation or especially in the past five to ten years, you sometimes can even find it in a regional language, not just in translation. But the labels global and world have other connotations, sometimes in libraries. Sometimes they refer to kind of non-English non-white sometimes publishing or music. If you can think of the work of graphic journalists like Guy Delisle or Joe Sacco, sometimes they're considered global comics because they're talking about topics, issues that are happening all over the world. But one is Canadian and Joe Sacco, it's American. So for us, in our understanding, what we're talking in the chapter, they would be US or Canadian works because they're published in the U.S. or Canada by Canadian or U.S. creators. But we're always arguing about this. And there's people that the same way that on literature, we have competitive literature. There's people in comic studies that is starting to look also at, at this idea of the international comics. And they, they're starting to use the global comic studies label. So we'll see how that evolves. For this particular chapter, we were very comfortable with international because we thought it spoke clearly to what we wanted to do on the chapter. And for those curious about this global thing, there's a Canadian scholar, Benjamin Wu, that has a chapter, uh, a journal article a couple of years ago, where he very intriguingly and playfully talks about the American comic book industry as something that perhaps doesn't exist as such as American because of the corporations, because of all the international creators. I find it a very playful article to read sometimes because it shows Sometimes those even national labels in comics are a little bit meaningless in a way. <laughs> Manga is essentially Japanese comics, although that's a pretty you know broad term. It's essentially anything that is serialized art, comic style, born in Japan, or now imitative of a style born in Japan. So... It's not uncommon for people to talk about manga that was created in the United States, which is based on a particular aesthetic of kind of uh, Japanese style animation, big triangular faces, big eyes, small mouths and noses. Our collection at the University of Pennsylvania Libraries, the East Asia Comics Collection, has opened itself up to Korean comics, which are called manhwa in Korean, trying to make it more ecumenical, more open to different types of, of cultural input. And inspiring both language learners and pleasure readers, which is great when you can say, my library book does a lot of things at once. It's helping people learn a language. It's helping people unwind after a busy week. And it's collecting something that will be the fodder for current and future academic research. So, you know, these things are doing a lot of lifting for such a small book. There's much more interest in the Japanese comics from our language learning side. There's more material expertise from our librarians in the Japanese language than in Korean, although we've tried to expand it a little bit more. But again, it's a Japanese-driven medium. So, of course, there's just so much from Japan that it's hard not to collect it. I'd love for it to include more Chinese language comics. I don't know enough about the medium in China or Hong Kong, Taiwan. I'd love it to expand more. And the scope of East Asia here in our libraries is mostly 
China, Japan, Korea. Sometimes Vietnam is included in there as part of this sphere of languages influenced by Chinese and having vocabulary words in Chinese. There's definitely Vietnamese comics, although we don't necessarily have a robust Vietnamese studies program. I've seen some original Vietnamese language manga influenced comics, and they look really cool. I just can't read a word of it. American comic books, as many people are familiar with them, are often floppy affairs. They're kind of magazine-like. Those don't necessarily exist in Japan. I'm sure they do. But the way manga is generally published in Japan, I'm not as familiar with Korean customs, but for Japan, you get these big, thick pulp magazines, black and white. They're full of serialized comics. So you'll get, you know, the June issue of something like Shonen Jump, which you can also find here in English version. It contains multiple stories published over time. But these things are not meant to last forever. It's thick, cheap newsprint. If you try and bind these things, you're going to lose parts of the story into the gutter as the books get bound and chopped off. They're very difficult to collect. There's the challenge of, one, what is the scope of this? Is this a one-off book that we can say, let's order it from our vendor and then close the order? Or are we getting ourselves into collecting a 20-year project of some of these uh, long-running manga go on and on, and you are setting the library up for a complicated standing order that might be difficult to maintain. Sometimes the author, the artists and authors just take a hiatus and you just don't get it for years, but maybe you won't know that because your vendor doesn't know that because the publisher doesn't know that because even the author doesn't know it. And yeah, so it, it is challenging to house uh, bulk of them. Broadly speaking, graphic medicine is the the intersection of the medium of comics and the discourse of healthcare. That's the formal academic version of it. But basically, we're talking about comics that are about a healthcare experience. And that can be anything from, you know, Mom's Cancer by Brian Fees, where it's a caregiving experience. It can be something fictional, but based on the creator's real experiences as a doctor, like The Bad Doctor by Ian Williams. It is primarily talking about educational and memoir comics here. But we also broaden that out to include things like, I have the most recent Mr. Miracle run in my graphic medicine collection because it's a fantastic look at like grief and mental health and all of this stuff. So it, it's not just a specific genre. It's also kind of a way of looking at and interacting with the comics medium. If you're in a public library or a hospital library and you're building something browsable with the idea that, hey, if you're experiencing a health condition, you might look at these titles. Then some criteria to think about are, you know, accuracy. Are they medically accurate to the best of your ability to evaluate that as a librarian, of course? Are they culturally appropriate? Like there are a lot of graphic medicine works coming out in a variety of languages and from a variety of perspectives. And some may fit better with your community than others. The one I, I always use for this example is Epileptic by David B. It's a, a highly acclaimed comic, but it may not be right for most public library, you know, walking in off the street, grabbing a comic readers. It's very complicated and it has some questionable views about epilepsy that you might need to consider that kind of thing. Because we don't want to have to put up a bunch of warnings and labels about the books that gets us into dangerous territory with censorship and everything. But think about how you're going to present the comics to your population. What other materials are you going to include with them? Like some libraries I've seen include Medline or NLM, like public health pamphlets and things with their comics collection on graphic medicine. That's a great option, but that's going to determine what you're choosing for that collection. 
Cataloging is always challenging, and it is perhaps the biggest challenge graphic novels and comics bring to libraries because it's not a well-documented medium, and traditional tools like Library of Congress subject headings are not keeping up with them. The Library of Congress has a subject heading manual, and for comics specifically, it's SHMH1430 is what you're supposed to follow. And 1430 states that you do not add like subject headings for comics unless they are nonfiction, biographies. Like So any sort of superhero comic should just have superhero comics as a genre term. Nothing else. No other subject analysis. Library of Congress does not necessarily follow their own rules. But I think that that's a lot of the pushback is you have a lot of catalogers who consider the subject heading manual like it's their guide. This is how we catalog. I would say the biggest thing that's a challenge when you're cataloging comics is the creative team, or one of the biggest things. The fact that comics are rarely made by a single person. You often have at least a writer and an illustrator. You might also have letterers and inkers and cover art and so many different people who are involved in creating it. And our systems are just not set up to have eight people as creators for an object. So how to translate an entire creative team and make something findable in your record is one big thing. Building upon what Hallie said, as somebody who does catalog comics and has struggled through the DC archive editions, you might have a 15 volume set of collected Batman titles. I have to go through the entire table of contents, pull out every single author, every single inker, every single penciler, every single colorist, and every single letter. And then on top of that, because DC has its own errata page because of how many mistakes they make after they publish something, I have to go to the errata page, figure out what mistakes were made in the attributions, and then go and add in the notes and then change everything that I've already entered in all the different fields. If someone's looking for a superhero comic, they're frequently just looking for the character. If someone's looking for more traditional graphic novels, they might be looking for anything by Neil Gaiman. But title is usually, oh, I've heard of this comic Fun Home, and somebody said I can maybe get it at the library. Where do I find it? Public library is somebody's presumably mostly looking for personal reading. Obviously, people do research at public libraries as well. But in an academic setting, somebody might be doing a thesis on Jewish American women artists in the 40s. And we need to put in the time in our cataloging in order to make that findable for them or why have the comic at all. And I will say there has been a push recently amongst comic catalogers to try to get more terms into Library of Congress subject headings. So superheroes, comma, black is a subject heading, African-American superheroes, Jewish superheroes, Muslim superheroes. So there's a lot of headings that are coming in, but there's not necessarily the retroactive time to add them into everything that we already have. So it's kind of a catch-22 in many ways. Like I can help patrons because I catalog most of our comics. So I know, first of all, what we have. And I try to put stuff in for summary statements or keywords. So at least it'll be findable somehow because I can't put everything in subject headings. Like it just doesn't work. But one of the things that we recommended in our chapter is consider other ways, like make a lip guide if you're an academic library, you know, and have like a list of comics because that's a way that you can kind of get around some of the limitations in cataloging. I don't think the subject heading system that we are using right now, LCSH, Library of Congress subject headings, really captures manga as a genre. It sort of lumps it into, well, it's all just part of comics and graphic novels. 
but there's so many subdivisions of manga that people who are connoisseurs or experts or researchers want to find out, well, what particular genre is it? I want to know this is, you know, a magical girl manga, or I want to know there's giant robots involved, or I want to know it's dark, it's this. And those things aren't adequately captured by many types of subject headings. So I think there's terms of art that are really hard to embed into the metadata and be consistent about without a dedicated comics cataloger, which is just, you know, it's a difficult proposition to sell. I think the conclusion that I always come back to, and this isn't specific to cataloging comics, but I think it is amplified in cataloging comics, is freaking hire catalogers already. Hire catalogers and pay them because this work is hard and it takes a long time. And that is just so apparent with cataloging comics, but is also true with regular traditional cataloging as well. Like hire catalogers already. As a cataloger, I would second what Hallie said. And I would also say, acknowledge the fact that a lot of these have very minimal records. You, you can either have stuff fast or you can have it have good quality. You can't do both. I just think that you need to accept that if you want your comics to be discoverable, you need to give your catalogers time. You have to give them the grace to do it properly. Now that you have graphic novels, comics in your library, how can your community actually use them? Here at Juniata, we work under a liaison model. So that means we, we get to know those departments pretty well. We can kind of keep track of those research interests. So for example, I'm the liaison for the history department. So when I'm making selections for us to buy graphic novels, I am looking at under the mindset of, oh, this professor teaches revolutionary American history. And here's this brand new series about that. We'll buy it because in part, I want to read it anyway. But also in knowing that we have it in our library, I can at some point go to this professor and go, hey, we have this. And I notice you have this unit that relates to it. Would you like to try it in your class or just read it and see what you think? It's also helpful to target specific classes with specific recommendations. So what Jacob said, but, you know, if you have an instructor who might not be totally sold on graphic novels, you could say like, hey, we have this, it ties in directly to your class and these three other people in your department are using them. Here's how they use them. So you can sort of give them a clear path to like, you can just incorporate this in your class and we kind of have it set up for you. So sort of having it ready to plug into the class, I think is useful because it sort of takes the burden off of the instructor a little bit to not only try something totally new, but try something totally new in a different uh, format than they're used to. I do a lot of outreach. When I first started the collection, I presented on it to our annual faculty and staff professional development events. And I just brought a huge cart of graphic novels and the faculty who showed up, I just started handing them graphic novels in their subject area. And these were things they'd never seen before. They thought they were coming to a presentation about comics. And I handed them, you know, history. I handed them political science, you know, medicine. So I think the key is exposure, right? So once the faculty saw that and started thinking about connections for their students, it mushroomed a bit. For example, our ESOL faculty are really interested in including it in their ESOL classes. I provided them with a list of graphic novels that may be appropriate reading levels for ESOL students. And they're thinking about creating an assignment where the ESOL students read a graphic novel by someone from a culture other than their own, and then talk about, you know, comparing and contrasting and 
that sort of thing. So there, there are definitely ways, but I, I find I'm almost like a bookseller who does hand selling. Like I'll just bring my graphic novels to like campus events, to faculty meetings, just make them as visible as possible. Here, I know we have on the undergrad side of campus, there are faculty here who teach in the, the history of, of sciences. And there's a course on, you know, images and science over time. And they do an entire like month long unit on graphic medicine and, and images in medicine. And so the comics come into that conversation to think about how have we depicted illness over time and how have people experienced illness over time? You could do studies on how has the representation of healthcare workers changed over time. There are some comics that were drawn prior to the last 30 years. Sometimes people are surprised to hear that graphic medicine has been around for a long time, but there were things long ago. Sometimes they're hard to get your hands on, but like you'll see depictions of nurses with the the silly white hat and everything. And you would never see a female physician drawn in some of those pamphlets and comics, but the world has changed. And so you can compare and contrast the way we, you know, depict things. And in the medical school side, we use comics as a way to try to reintroduce the humanity back into the the medical education experience. So rather than thinking of the body as just a machine, I present you with a story about a real person who's suffering and dealing with this. And then you have to reckon with, so if you're doing a surgery on someone, great, you know, the biomechanics is really important, but when you're talking to them afterwards, you have to remember that they're a human being and they're feeling things and they're scared and suffering. And so how do you connect back to them as a person after the fact? So we use comics a lot for that. And then, you know, we use them as an example for students to ask them to create their own comics. You know, it's not just about reading them. It's also about creating in graphic medicine. And so We've got Linda Berry's great comics like Syllabus and what it is in the collection. And so we use those to teach people to draw as well and to encourage them to draw as well. And that's kind of a burnout prevention kind of thing most often, but it can also be an exercise in teaching students how to better communicate and teaching them the arc of a story and that sort of thing. Why have a graphic novel collection if nobody can find it? How can graphic novel collections be more findable, more accessible? One of the first things I did was I placed the collection in a super high traffic area. So the collection doesn't live upstairs with the rest of the books. It lives in its own spot on our main floor in an area where students tend to congregate, especially, you know, to eat lunch or to chat. It's sort of our soft seating area. It's near our leisure reading and our DVDs. So it's really an attention grabbing spot. You know, I have great circulation numbers, but the one thing I really measure is, you know, I go down there every day to tidy up the books that have moved around on the shelves. And that means students are reading them in the library. And that just makes my day. So I think having a, a good location is key. I also feature new arrivals on our new arrival shelf, which is right by our entrance. So it's visibility. I personally prefer comics to be separate. I think it makes them easier to browse. I can also see some of the downsides because if you're just looking at everything for World War II and you see Mouse, you might be like, hey, I've never heard of this. This is kind of interesting. As somebody who works in a fairly large academic library, our stacks are completely crowded and comics are so thin, they will get lost. You won't be able to find them, especially in some of our more populous sections. So anything in the, the P's, all of our literature and language, we don't have room on the shelf anymore. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think having comics in their own section is the way to go. Because a lot of the time, I think people who know they're looking for comics just want comics. They don't want to sort through an entire shelf of 
regular books in order to find a tiny little spine of the thing that they're looking for. I, I would push back a little bit, bit on the discoverability thing. I feel like somebody who's looking for World War II or Holocaust information, if they see Mouse in that section, my instinct is they're more likely to go, why is this here? It's going to feel out of place as opposed to feeling like, oh, this is a different way to ingest this material, even though that's absolutely the case. I don't think that's how it is perceived. At the very least, they should be marked out with their own spine label that says, like, this is a comic. This is a graphic novel. Please look at it. Because otherwise, it's just going to get lost on a shelf and never found again. (laughs) I'm always going to say that you should have them as their own collection. And that might make the cataloging a little easier. Maybe you can use your own in-house approach to cataloging the comics if they don't have to be shelved with the rest of the collection. Or you can always do the whole sticker thing, like throw the graphic novel sticker on the spine label along with the official Dewey or Library of Congress call number and throw it up. Let's try to figure it out how to best serve both librarians and patrons to be able to make those comics more visible, especially If you're going to spend a lot of time doing collection development to find them and put them in the shelves. If you're spending a lot of time doing this work, why not make it kind of like shine in a way that then it will give you that return and investment in a way that matters so much nowadays. We found it highly beneficial to those collections to have a dedicated space for them. So having a graphic novel collection that is searchable within your catalog and also like making sure that collection is visible from like a high traffic location. If you are talking to an instructor, they come in over the summer and they're asking, what books do you have that I could use for my class? I want to revamp things. I'm interested in adding something new. It's really easy when it's right there to say, have you considered our graphic novel collection? So that has been a really great marketing tool. We don't have to go to a different floor. They're just very accessible right there. With the wide variety of material available, what's the best way to figure out which graphic novels to recommend to others, particularly new readers? The breadth and depth of what's being published now is, number one, awesome, but number two can be very daunting for somebody who just wants to get into it. And so asking those key questions of why you want to read, what you want to read, what are you interested in, I think is key to kind of narrowing down what what I would say to them. I think the key is to find that personal connection for someone. And then that just opens the floodgates, right? I mean, of course, there are going to be some people who don't connect. But I think generally, my experience has been, you can find something for anyone. And then you also have the folks who are super visual, and they just connect more with the art than with the story. And, you know, that's fine, too. It feels like 20 years ago, you would say, oh, you have a mouse and found home. Just go and read those. And you'll go from there. And it was almost kind of painful because those are two comics that are not easy to start your comics reading with. So it was almost like, I think we're doing a disservice to ourselves, recommending doses as the places to start. Currently, the beauty and the complexity of, of responding to that question is that it requires an expertise from librarians. It requires knowledge. It's very vibrant right now, the publishing market. If you want to pay attention and you want to kind of diversify what you have available in your collection and attract other kinds of readers. For me, it's very hard to just recommend point blank, this is what you should read. A lot of it is really dependent on the art style because there are certain comics I 
have tried to get into like, I like the storyline, but the art, I don't like at all. And I just, I can't continue reading it because I just have so many problems with the way that the art looks. And it's just something about it just doesn't connect with me. And so I think that there needs to just be like, I don't recommend a single title whenever I talk to a person. I always recommend like five or six and be like, somewhere in here, there should be something that you like. And once you kind of tell me which one you like, then I can recommend more. A library should always be striving to meet all of its patrons' needs. What else is a library but that place where people can get excited about knowledge and reading? There are so many good comics right now. Like, there's new stuff that we can hand to people. And I find that super exciting. Thank you to editor John Balestro and all of the authors who participated in this discussion. Intrigued? Want to learn more? Check out the book this discussion was based upon, The Library's Guide to Graphic Novels, and explore the graphic novel collection at your local library. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice, and help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas. Thanks again to Syndetics Unbound from ProQuest and Library Thing for sponsoring today's episode. Visit them at syndetics.com.